Our second reading this morning comes from John's Gospel, chapter 17. I will read verses 6 through 19. Hear the word of God. This is Jesus praying, by the way. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you had given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Eternal God, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see your truth. We ask that you would silence all of the false gospels and vain hopes that rattle around in our brains. Help us now to attend to your unchanging word so that our minds might be renewed and our hearts reshaped. These favors we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning I'm going to talk to you about our identity as followers of Jesus Christ and about our destiny as followers of Jesus Christ. Our gospel reading this morning outlines our identity of our, our identity in Christ in uh, three points. First, it teaches us that we belonged to God the Father in eternity past and that we were given by God the Father to God the Son, Jesus Christ, at just the right time. Second, we learn that our intellects 
are being filled with special knowledge and that our wills are being trained toward special behavior by the Word of God. And three, we hear that we are sent by Jesus Christ into the world in exactly the same way as God the Father sent Jesus Christ into the world. That's who we are. And it doesn't matter what the rest of the world has to say about us. It doesn't even matter what we used to think about ourselves. We do what Paul says that he does in 2 Corinthians 5.16, where he writes, From now on I regard no one from the worldly point of view. Though I once regarded Christ in this way, I do so no, no longer. Because if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So that's where we begin. There is a certain God's eye point of view regarding our reality. There is a way in which God sees us which is different from how we most often see ourselves. It isn't just that God is up high and so that he sees the lay of the land like a circling hawk. It is that God sees deeply, deeply into us deeply into our history, deeply into our purpose, and weirdly, deeply into our future. There is a worldly point of view, the normal point of view, which looks at you and at me and tells us who we are based upon our family or on our neighborhood or our history or our education or our income or our looks or our health. And then there's the God's eye point of view. And from the God's eye point of view, our lives and our histories and our bodies and our abilities and our futures are seen in a deeper way and in a truer way. We really should, I really should, start seeing ourselves the way God sees us. We really should start seeing other people the way God sees them. Because guess what? You and I and God don't always agree. And as crazy as it seems, when what I think and what God thinks disagree, it better be me who changes my mind. Because God won't change His, and He will be proved right in the end. So, believe this about yourself. You belonged to God the Father in eternity past and were given by God the Father to His Son, Jesus Christ, at just the right time. Your intellect is being filled with special knowledge, and your will is being shaped toward special behaviors revealed by the Word of God. And you are being sent by Jesus Christ into the world in the same way that God the Father sent Jesus Christ into the world. Our reading from the Gospel of John this morning is the second part of what is often called the high priestly prayer. On the night of the Last Supper, Jesus has had a long conversation with his disciples. Judas has gone out into the night to betray Jesus, and then Jesus begins to pray. As we read last week in the first five verses of this chapter, Jesus prays for himself. He prays that God the Father will restore His glory to Him. That God the Father will glorify the Son. And now this week, in the second part of this prayer, Jesus prays for His disciples. 
He prays for the 11 who are with him around the table that night. And next week, we will look at the last part of this prayer where Jesus prays for the people who would one day come to know Jesus because of the testimony of the 11 who were there with him at the Last Supper. Now, there is some minor difference of opinion among commentators about this section that we're reading today. Does it apply only to the disciples? Is this only for the apostles? Or does it apply to the church more broadly? My own take on this is that this section applies to all Christians. Yes, when Jesus prayed this prayer, he distinguished those who already believed in him from those who would later come to believe in him. But the truth of this section is uh, that, uh, that this prayer describes uh, is the very nature of a Christian. And that very nature remains the same no matter what century or what generation we were converted. So when we hear Jesus pray... I am praying for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. It is right for us to believe that he's praying about us. So let's listen to what Jesus has to say. Firstly, we belong to God the, we belonged to God the Father in eternity past. And we were given by the Father to the Son, Jesus Christ, at just the right time. In verse 6, Jesus says to his Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. They are yours. And in verse 9, Jesus says about these same people, they are yours. Jesus is sitting at supper with 11 men. Men who have given up everything to follow him. Men who were just a tiny fraction of the total number of people that Jesus preached to. These 11 men would become the leaders of a church that was very small at the beginning, after the crucifixion, before the day of Pentecost, there were only 121 or 120 faithful believers in Jerusalem. 120 out of the thousands and thousands of people who had seen and heard Jesus. The ones who responded to Jesus' message, are the ones who belonged to the Father and were given by the Father to the Son to be His followers, to be His church at just the right time. In John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent sent me draws him. In John 6, 65, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It is important for us to see that our response to the gospel is rooted deeply in God's plan from all eternity. We are no accident. Our faith didn't just happen. We belong to God the Father always and were given to His Son when the time was right. Second, As people who belong to God the Father and have been given to God the Son, our intellects are being filled with special knowledge and our wills are being trained towards special behaviors by the revealed Word of God. The way we are given by God the Father to God the Son is through the hearing of the Word of God, which shapes our intellect and which influences our wills. And this Word of God comes to us as a revelation. 
in verse 6, Jesus begins by saying, I have manifested your name to the people. This word manifested, aphanerosa in Greek, means to cause to be revealed, to cause to be uncovered, to cause to be shown forth. Jesus reveals, he uncovers, he shows forth the name of God to these people. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on uh, the Gospel of John, understands the name of God in this verse to be shorthand for God's entire nature and character. Obviously, the people that Jesus was speaking to already knew the name of God, which had been revealed to Moses. Jesus shows us who God is. If you want to understand God, then listen to Jesus. And how do we do that? By attending to the preaching and the reading of God's holy word. In verse 8, Jesus says, I have given them, I have given to them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. In verse 14, he says, I have given them your word. And in verse 7, speaking of the disciples, Jesus says, they have kept your word. Now, let me repeat something that many of you already know. In Greek, the word for word and the word for logic or reason are the same word. And the word is logos. So when the New Testament talks about the word or the word of God or Jesus being the word, we are dealing here with things that are grasped by reason, by understanding. Anyone who thinks that Christianity is irrational has failed to understand this religion. The content of our faith is known through words and reason. And the summation of those words and what those words mean are the doctrines that the church has always taught, the teachings of the apostles. And the organizing of those words and reasons into a systematic form is the discipline of theology. Now, I'm not saying that we can know all things about God through natural reason alone. Jesus makes it clear that the word that he has provided to us the word which separates us from the world when we receive it, that this word is a revelation, it is a manifestation, it is an uncovering, it is a supernatural word. It goes beyond what we can know through natural means alone, but it is not an unreasonable word. It is not irrational. Faith goes beyond what natural reason teaches, but faith does not contradict what natural reason teaches. That's why as Christians we should never understand our faith and the natural sciences to be in any way in conflict. We are in the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. And one of the features of that Reformation was the intentional education of lay people. Before the Reformation, in the medieval church, lay people were taught to trust the clergy in all matters regarding faith. But with the Reformation, the education of lay people so that they could read Scripture for themselves, so that they could understand the doctrines of the church themselves, became important. Here at HVPC, we want you to think about your faith. We don't want you to leave your brains at the door when you come to church. To be a Christian 
means that we receive into our intellect, into our reason, certain kinds of special knowledge. That is the content of our faith. That is the revelation. That is the teaching of the apostles. That content is found in the Bible. Periodically, the church has summed up the important points of the contents in creeds and in confessions. And these matters of faith are understood by reason, by intellect, by our understanding and mind. But the Word of God not only touches our intellect, our minds, it also touches our will and our heart. The will is the faculty of choice. The heart is the faculty of desire. Maybe you've noticed that knowing something with your mind and doing something or desiring something are not the same thing. You can know that you should eat less and exercise more if you want to lose weight. But a lot of us have trouble getting our wills to do the thing that our reason knows that we should do. Same is true in matters of faith. Our faith contains commandments about how we should live. These commandments are easy for our reason to understand. Here are some of the commands that we find in the New Testament. Some of the things that are included in the word that Jesus delivered to us. John thirteen thirty four, Love one another. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Romans 12.16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Romans 13.8, let no debt remain outstanding. Romans 14.13, stop passing judgment on one another. Romans 15.7, accept one another. Ephesians 4.2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you might have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgives you. James 4.11, do not slander one another. 1 Peter 3.8, live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Those are all examples of New Testament laws. Those are all easy to understand. When Jesus says in his great commission, go and make disciples of all the nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, those are the kinds of things that Jesus taught his disciples and that he expects followers to obey. They are the content of our faith. And this content is delivered to us through words, it is grasped by reason, and then it must be acted upon by our wills. As I've mentioned, the will doesn't always do what reason says is best. We all know this experience. But here's the good news. As the Word of God dwells in us, as we meditate upon God's Word regularly and as a matter of habit, it begins to shape not only our minds and reason, but also our hearts and wills. And the result is what we call sanctification. People beginning to think and act more like Christ. 
First, we hear the word of God, then we believe it, and we, and we receive it, and then in time, that word begins to change us from the inside out. Paul talks about this in Romans 12 too, where he writes, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me say that again. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Word of God renews our minds, and that's why we have to bring our minds to church with us. And as our mind is renewed, our hearts change also. Finally, we are sent by Jesus Christ into the world in the same way that God the Father sent His Son into the world. In this prayer At the Last Supper, Jesus is praying specifically for his disciples, men who will soon become apostles. They're going to spread the word about Jesus and the church will be born. You and I are sitting here this morning because those 11 men listening to Jesus pray that night later began to tell other people about what they had heard and what they had seen. Just as God the Father sent Jesus into the world. Jesus, in turn, sends these disciples into the world. And those disciples, in turn, made new disciples, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus had commanded them. And those second-generation disciples made third-generation disciples until we get to our lives. I think each of us can think of someone in our lives who was instrumental in bringing us to the faith. It's been 50 generations since Jesus. 50 generations of the church handing off the faith to the rising generation. And so we continue to do what the saints have done before us. We continue to tell others. We go into the world and we preach the gospel. We imitate what Jesus himself did. We imitate what the apostles did. The high priestly prayer teaches us three things about ourselves. That we belong to God the Father in eternity past. And that we were given by God the Father to His Son Jesus Christ at just the right time. It teaches us that our intellects are being filled with special knowledge. And that our wills are being trained towards special behaviors by the revealed Word of God. And it teaches us that we are sent... By Jesus into the world in the very same way that God the Father sent His Son into the world. Now, way back at the beginning of this sermon, which seems a very long time ago now, I mentioned that this prayer of Jesus tells us also about our destiny. And so I want to touch on that a little bit before we wrap up. In verse 12, Jesus says to his father, I have guarded them. Jesus had guarded his disciples. And then in verse 15, because Jesus is about to leave the world and won't be around to guard his disciples firsthand anymore, Jesus asks his father, keep them from the evil one. The idea is 
Exactly the same as what we see in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. The original Greek in both cases in this passage in John and also in the Lord's Prayer, the original Greek is ambiguous. It can mean either evil or the evil one. Both are correct. I actually think in both cases Jesus meant both possibilities. Deliver us from the evil one, from Satan. And deliver us from evil, from the corruption of our hearts. Because Jesus prays this prayer, we are confident that God the Father will bring this to pass. God the Father protects and keeps us from the evil one. God the Father protects and keeps us from evil. Some people are a little more fascinated with evil and with the evil one than they probably should be. So let me just say two quick things about evil. First, Satan is real. Jesus believed in Satan. Jesus taught about Satan. Jesus had encounters with Satan. So he is real. But Satan never was all-powerful. And now Satan is defeated and his doom is sure... And as members of the body of Christ, as people who have been redeemed by Christ, we really have nothing to do with Satan anymore. He has no claim on us. He can try to annoy us and harass us, but he is washed up. He's a loser, and the clock is ticking until his doom is final. Second, there is evil in the world. All we have to do is read a newspaper or read a history book to know that there is genuine evil in the world. But evil is not a force. Evil is not a reality equal and opposite to the good. That is Star Wars theology with its force and its dark side. In creating the Star Wars theology, George Lucas was simply borrowing the theology from a group known as the Manichaeans way back in the first century. A dualistic theology that says that there are two equal and opposite kinds of reality. One dark, one light, one evil, one good. St. Augustine was a Manichaean before he finally converted and became a Christian. So let me say it clearly. Star Wars theology is wrong. It is not biblical. Evil is not the equal and opposite of the good. In Christian theology, evil is the absence of good in the same way that darkness is the absence of light and cold is the absence of heat and chaos is the absence of order. All of which means that as Christians, we do not focus on evil, nor do we war against evil. We focus on the good and we create the good because wherever we generate good wherever we generate light wherever we generate order the boundaries and the domain of evil are pushed back like a candle in the darkness the good is real while all of the darkness is simply an absence of reality now i'm supposed to wrap up my sermons with some kind of application The idea is that the body of the sermon is the theory and then the closing of the sermon tells you what you're supposed to do about that theory. I've never been really good with application in my preaching. Frankly, I never was terribly interested in it when I was 
riding the pews rather than preaching. I think that's because I find the ideas of the faith fascinating and beautiful in themselves, and I never have liked anyone to tell me what to do. And I never went to church to have a pastor to tell me how to live my life, though I would be content all day to listen to have the scriptures explained. So with that deficit in mind, what application can we extract from this second section of the high priestly prayer of Jesus? In this section, Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for us. He says that our identity is in God's eternal election. He says that God gave them to him at just the right time. He says that the word of God changes them from the inside out, influencing how they think and how they act. And then he asks God's special protection on them. I believe that everything Jesus says about his disciples is true of us. And I think the application today is to let those truths settle into our hearts, to allow ourselves to believe that God always had us in his hand, to allow ourselves to believe that at just the right time, God gave us to his son to be his beloved possession, to allow ourselves to believe that God's word in our lives, little by little, is changing our minds and is changing our hearts. And please, may we always believe that God is especially protecting us, guarding us. Not only because he loves us, but also because Jesus, his son, asked for this special favor. Think of it. Jesus prayed this prayer of protection for us. God the Father is going to deny his own son in answering this prayer. There's no chance. Lord Jesus Christ asked God the Father to protect you. Meditate on that for a while. And then worship God. Let me close by reading for you the words of Psalm 91, which proclaim this very same promise for us. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, or of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot. Against a stone. This is the word of the Lord, and it is for us. Let us pray. Almighty God, your word is truth, your word is life, your word is light. We pray that your truth would be alive in our hearts and that we would be different because of it. These favors we ask in the name of Jesus, who is the Word of God. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you that we believe as